Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions for you is producer Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I am well, Mick. We got an avalanche of questions uh, this past week. And, oh, uh, I don't know if I should be happy or scared. Yeah. Well, you know, the great news is We've got plenty of AMAs queued up now because of it. So uh, thanks <laughs> thanks to everyone who sent them in. Yes, Just thank you. Just because you don't hear your question today does not mean it won't get asked in the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, I noticed there were there were a lot of them out there. So. Yes, yes. Apparently, there was a lot of pent-up buildup over the holidays for, <laughs> for Mick Garris questions. So, the need, yeah. The need, the need is there. Um, and we're happy to provide that service. So uh, shall we dive in? Let's do it. All right. Uh, TDE Pero writes, with Valentine's Day coming up, let's get some love advice from Mick. What does he and Cynthia do to celebrate the holiday? Well, I'm the last person you want to turn to for love advice, let me tell you. But uh, Cynthia and I, who, uh, well, this year will be our 40th anniversary. Um, Unbelievable. Congratulations. So it changes a lot. You know, we used to travel uh, for our anniversaries, for uh, Valentine's and the like, doing less of that, obviously, in this post-COVID world. But um, usually it's pretty quiet together. We always celebrate. There's always some gift giving and there's always some roses and uh, there's always some chocolate, um, but mainly just kind of spending time together. And I can't believe that anybody in our audience gives a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Mick, Cynthia has been a part of your life and a part of your career in movies for a long time now. So I'm not surprised. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And she's, she's a lovely lady and your relationship, I think is something to aspire to. Well, thank you. Um, it is weird though, Valentine's day in a, uh, post COVID world. I was thinking about the last Valentine's day that was normal. I mean, I guess semi-normal was 2020 and I saw John Carpenter and, uh, Sandy King out to dinner when Crystal and I went out. Oh, that's great. That was kind of a fun little highlight, but, uh, anyway, that's great. Well, February, 2020, is when I had what I am positive now was COVID. Interesting. So you, the you, last trip I did uh, was to Pensacola, Florida, um, for a film festival convention type thing there, and I came back and was in bed for two weeks. I remember that you were sick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, I mean, if that's good, then that explains uh, why you haven't maybe gotten it since. Plus vaccines and boosters and the like. Yeah. I think those (laughs) might count for even more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we're happy that you are still safe and sound and vaxxed up and boosted. Uh, Happy and healthy for the same for you, Joe. Absolutely. So, all right. Next question. Our friend of the podcast, Momo asks, is there a film you return to often when you want to relax? I'm not a huge repeat viewer, But there are things, you know, um, the two movies I've seen more than any other are Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein and A Hard Day's Night. 
both of which I've seen so many times, but not in many years. Um, so I haven't gone back to the comfort food of, of those two, the cinematic comfort food. Um, Poltergeist is another one of those that <clears throat> I can just settle into at any time. If I'm flipping around and seeing what's on, you know, uh, and there's Poltergeist, it's hard not to stop and watch it to the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, that Jaws is another one that is is something that uh, at least every year we watch that one. So uh, those are those are pretty much the old, old reliable ones. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of good ones and a lot of crossover for me, too. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff, but I, I really do like to see something I haven't seen before. Cynthia has seen Dracula, Coppola's Dracula over 50 times and Alien as well. So those are like two for her, two movies I love as well. But 50 times for any movie is too much for me. <laughs> That's funny. I, I feel like um, it's the opposite in our house. Crystal hates rewatching movies and I, I love it. Uh, uh, I, I, I like to wrap myself in the blanket of the familiar and and she'll uh, just yes. roll her eyes at whatever I pick. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you know, when you cohabitate, you that uh, that definitely influences the choices of your your evening movie. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Mark asks: Is there a movie you thought would have worked better if it was in color instead of black and white, or vice versa? Uh, interesting question, but you know the intent. Often a movie is intended, you know, uh, Young Frankenstein was shot in color, but printed in black and white. Right. And we've seen pictures of the Peter Boyle monster and his very colorful skin hues and the like. But other than Nightmare Alley, which is currently in theatrical release in black and white because it was such a huge hit in color. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Mick is kidding. You know, anyone needs to I, I am, read I the am. sarcasm meter. Sadly, but, but it, it, sadly is a, it was very unappreciated at the box office. Very that. unappreciated, despite its many, many, many pleasures. Uh, and the artistic elements in that movie are phenomenal. Oh my um, gosh, yes. I revisited it uh, last week. And uh, I think I liked it even more the second time. So did you watch it in black and white the second time? No, no, no. I watched my, my WGA screener, but I, uh -huh. I really want to see it in black and white. It reminds me of when the mist came out in black and white. Right. And that you can I now love. see on, you can now see that in black and white as a, a feature on the Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm hoping maybe Nightmare Alley has uh, something like that too. Cause I would love to go watch it. I would love to go watch it in the new Beverly, but I'm still a little skittish about the whole Omicron thing. So. Right, right. Well, there's uh, to answer the question directly, I, I, I've never actually actively thought, gee, this should have been color. Gee, this should have been black and white. Everything has been shot in color except for making a specific artistic choice since color became ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, so anyone who shoots in black and white, usually it's a very successful filmmaker who has earned the right to do that. Um, or it has been a very low budget independent film where it's an artistic choice and there's so little money at stake that it's fine with whoever distributes it. But usually the choice is, is made by the studio that there's no way in hell we're going to release a black and white movie in a color yeah. So, I, I, but I've, 
I've never really seen a film and, and thought that it should have been opposite of what it ended up being. I'm still very uh, impressed and amazed that we, we were able to slide the David Slade this way is way to egress segment in Nightmare Cinema through in black. Well, <laughs> well you know, I didn't even tell the people, the money people. No, I know. I know. Wow. I was, I was, uh, I was shocked that there was no pushback when the dailies came in. <laughs> no, when David was asking if he could do it in black and white, saying or saying he'd like to do it in black and white, I, I said, by all means, just don't tell anybody. Yeah, and it was the right choice. Um, yeah, yeah, so. and he said it was with cameras that only shoot black and white. I don't know if that's oh no that that camera specifically limited. only shot in black and white. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. That is, that is, it was a, it well, was a that's the way to do monochrome. it. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Then there's no, there's no, uh, there's no going back. Exactly. exactly. But it also is part of the point I was making earlier. We made a movie independently uh, on such a low budget that we can take artistic gambles like that because so little was at stake. Exactly. Uh, this next question is interesting because the example that they point to, I actually think is, uh, a success. So I thought maybe we could correct it in, in answering the question, but uh, Travol asks, why do you think many major studios like New Line went under so quickly after achieving a lot of success? Oh, well, the opposite is true. New exactly. Line, New Line made the Hobbit movies and yep. they became so successful. The Lord of the Rings movies uh, were so hugely successful that they sold for, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars to Warner Brothers. Exactly. They were they were actually I think of all the mini majors, they're like the crown jewel success story, you know, yeah. uh, because they became in them and, and perhaps Lionsgate Summit when when they merged uh, are yeah. probably the, the, the biggest mid range movie producers that have actually made it. And you know? Mir Miramax when it was sold to Disney for huge, huge amounts of money. So, um, yeah, the the basis for the question is flawed to the point that I forgot what the question itself was. <laughs> was why 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 do they these these mini majors seem to uh, struggle? Um, uh, and I think to some extent they do in the modern era. I mean, you know, I think STX has had kind of modest success so far yeah and um, it's harder and harder because streaming pays so little and theatrical releases are reserved as we've spoken many times in my editorials uh, on our interview shows that um, theatrical releases for independent films are becoming more and more rare you get a24 has a pretty good batting average but even they uh strike out uh, theatrically and rely mostly on streaming or even physical media. So it's a very, very tough road to hoe being an independent distributor because the payback is so low. People are paying streaming rights that are very, very low unless you've had a hit at Sundance or some high profile film that has high profile cast or filmmaker attached. Right. It's very rare to get a theatrical success or even a streaming success. The, and, and just for historical context, the difference being for, for the Miramaxes and the New Lines and the Lionsgates of the world to when they were a success, the physical media market was still very, very much uh, supplementing the revenues of movies. And that is not the case anymore. 
and even supplanting the revenues of movies. I mean, they made many, if not most movies made most of their money from physical media. Absolutely. The development company that I was an executive at when we first met, uh, they had a movie that they had financed with Happy Madison in 2006 that did almost nothing at the box office, but made over $60 million in the home video market and kept the lights on at that company. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's the difference. Um, and Those thought, were the days, my friend. <laughs> I wish we I was there. Never, I wish I was yeah. there for them, Mick. I came out uh, for the bust, so not the boom. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my nightmare. Yeah. yeah, seriously. All right. Jake Vision asks, how can I become involved with the industry if I'm not a filmmaker? Specifically, I want to work in marketing and communication departments. Um, you kind of had a, I mean, ages ago, uh, yeah. you, you worked in the marketing, uh, world. I did marketing and publicity and that sort yeah. of thing, but this was a pre-internet era and almost all of those, uh, disciplines take place on the internet. Most yeah. all press is, is online, um, in doing publicity and marketing and that sort of thing. Um, I did not go to school for it. I was lucky enough to have a specialty in an area that the studios did not and were looking for. And so the only surefire way of doing it is being able to provide somebody with something they do not have and they need or Mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really rough these days because there are so many people into it, Uh, you know, a, a degree in, in, business and marketing, that sort of thing may help, but then you're on a level with everybody else who has one of those business or marketing degrees. And in the motion picture industry, it's, it's very, very difficult, but it, for me, what worked, what got me employed was being able to provide some expertise in selling genre movies to an audience that the studios did not understand. So, and as well, I was doing making of documentaries and things like that cheaper than anybody they would hire to do it because I hired myself. So I provided something that they didn't have and that they wanted and, and how to do it in these days when there are so many people doing exactly what we're talking about. I don't know that I can give advice. Well, I think, I think it's about, I think it's about building a portfolio of work that stands out like a friend of mine uh he worked on at his kind of small third-party company uh they got a contract to work on once upon a time in hollywood Uh and he was in charge of building a project that was basically a map of hollywood during that time that you could click on different parts of the map and it would tell you different things that connect to the movie um so and it won an award uh, That's awesome. so, so, you know, he was able to put that kind of in his portfolio and then he folded that into the next job and I'm sure he'll create something there that will fold into the next job until, you know, maybe a studio comes knocking. Right. Yeah, if you're able to work on a project that becomes a high profile project, um, it, you know, it's just difficult to, to walk into that door, you know, absolutely. Uh, but I think uh, it's, again, it's about, it's, it's no different than, making a short film as a calling card or writing a spec script that becomes your writing sample. You have to have something that shows you're good and gets the attention of the people who need to hire you. 
Yeah, something that shows you're not only good because there are tons and tons of good people, but stand out from that crowd. Exactly. All right. Joey D asks, do you have any tips on building a pitch deck or Bible for a television series? You know, it's an interesting question because for decades, I never, ever did a pitch deck. And now just recently, um, I, w- we did one for this new series I'm creating with Clive Barker that was very successful. Um, mainly, uh, and another movie that uh, that we're going out and pitching now, it's been optioned by a production company that's very excited about it, putting together a pitch deck. It's the same thing in writing a script, but in visual form, showing something that elevates it from everything else that's out there. You know, finding great visuals. Um, In the case of the Clive Barker series, he had a bunch of original paintings that he did for this show and these 10 original stories that he's written. Um, And I got to see it and it was very- Yeah, so that, <laughs> that and then there were, were uh, short um, synopses of these 10 stories, a little mm-hmm. bit of a history about who Clive is and how important he is to not only the literary genre, genre world and mainstream literary world, but to film and television as well. Uh, in the case of the feature we're doing, it's a period feature uh, it, uh, during the Depression that's a very specific location, very specific kinds of characters that we're able to illustrate from similar things from the past, but also writing text that is propulsive and exciting mm-hmm. and makes you realize why you want to not just see this movie, but make this movie. So it, it needs to be something that's visually arresting, that tells you what you want to know and leaves you wanting more and doesn't exhaust you by overplaying it. You know, don't do 30 pages. Don't, you know, often yeah. it's a leave behind after you pitch it verbally mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. online, you know. So uh, it's it's just got to be exciting. It's got to be something that, either makes them feel it's every bit as commercial as the most exciting commercial things out there now, or something that's so unique that it could be something hugely commercial and exciting to be a part of. Yeah. And uh, one, one resource I found that was really helpful because I had to do one last year for a project that, that I've been developing. Um, and, and like you, I've never been a, a fan of them. I've always thought it should be, you know, in the script or in the pitch. Uh, I've always felt them to be a bit window dressing, but uh, <clears throat> you know, execs are becoming more accustomed to the window dressing. So, yeah, it's become <laughs> the norm, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say be careful about the images that you pick. Uh, you're not always going to be so lucky to have a talented artist like Clive Barker create originals right. for you. Uh, <laughs> but but you know, if you pick things that are too familiar and recognizable, you run the risk of well, what if the executive you're pitching to doesn't like that movie or doesn't like that comp, right? So I think you have to be a little discerning about the images that you do include as references, as visual references. I found a great website called Shot Deck uh, where you can literally type in like, I need a woman in silhouette in front of a door. And then- They'll give you a bunch of references from movies that they've pulled uh, that, that are that that specific. Um, so 
pretty cool little little tool. That, that's great gotcha. to know about, Joe. I think you just gave more good advice in that one statement than I've done <laughs> all day today. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. A little little cheat for the future. But you um, also want to give potential casting, knowing yeah. that it may be out of your reach, but the kind of actor you're looking for, yes. you, you may or may not ever even be able to get it to them. But in this feature we're doing, that will be an important part of this, as well as another series I've got that we're uh, just about to start going out and pitching. Well, check out Shot Deck, Nick. I, th I thought it was yeah. good. Love so, it. All right. Uh, Ryan asks... What screenwriting software do you gentlemen most prefer? Is there a screenwriting <laughs> software that is industry standard slash most easily integrated with talent agencies? Everybody uses Final Draft. Everybody uses Final Draft. Yeah. Uh, there are um, off-brand ones that are compatible with Final Draft. It, whatever mm -hmm. you write in has to be compatible with Final Draft. Uh, that yeah. is the standard. It started out with scriptware, which was very successful, uh, but Final Draft replaced it uh, decades ago. And that is the industry standard. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It's the one that I started with that I'm most comfortable with. And people tell me all the time, like like Alejandro Bruges uses Highland, which is John August's uh, screenwriting software. Mm. And and I, I I downloaded it and I tried it. And to me, it looked like I was trying to write code, not a screenplay. <laughs> I just, Yikes. I just, I couldn't get into it, you know? Uh, so I think it's whatever you're most comfortable with there. There are definitely some options out there, but mix right. All of them have a way to output the file into an FDX, which is final drafts file code, because yeah. what happens is your assistant directors and your line producers and the like, they all want final draft. So yep. eventually you're going to have to convert it to final draft anyway, even if you're not doing the prose typing uh, in, in final draft. And there's another good reason for that because final draft is compatible with movie magic, which is yep. the production uh, uh, coordinator uses that the, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a technical operating system during for the production of a film or television show that takes all of those elements that are in the final draft script and puts them into the format for budgeting and scheduling and all of yep. that. Exactly. There's one little quirk in Ryan's question that I just wanted to address and clear up. Uh, he asked most easily integrated with talent agencies. I don't think there's ever a world where a talent agency will need the final draft file. Um, well, people will sometimes <laughs> send it to them, but by all means, send them a PDF so they yes. can't do anything to your exactly. script. Exactly. No, the only the only people you should be sending the final draft file to are the studios and producers and such after you've been paid. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So just just to just to clear that up. Um, well done. Right. John Ryan wants to know. What is the best advice you can give a horror writer director on coming up with their next feature idea? Well, you know, Harlan Ellison used to uh, joke about the the story store where you go in and buy an idea. Um, <laughs> you know, that's I don't know how somebody can advise someone on how to come up with ideas. You know, it's uh, it's all around you. It's the world you live in. It's the news. It's mm -hmm. people you know. It's experiences that happen to somebody you read about or you know or experiences you have yourself. Or it's your imagination. It's your dreams. Or in the case of 
of uh, screenwriters who are professional screenwriters, we dream awake for a living. Yeah. And that's part of the job is coming up with the ideas, the, uh, advising how to do that. Uh, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, can, I, can, I can say one thing not to do, uh, which is don't chase trends. Um, that's for sure, because you'll always be behind them. Exactly. So if you see Get Out in the movies and you love it and you want to write the next Get Out, you're, you're way behind the curve. Yeah. Uh, so I think Mick's right. Use the world around you uh, for inspiration and focus on that less so, oh, I want to write the next vampire movie because there was a vampire hit. Um, yeah. Uh, and by all means, not a found footage zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> Unless... Less, Unless uh, it's like one cut of the dead, which yes. is one of the best things I've ever seen. I'm going to take a moment to recommend people see that. The first 20 minutes or so, you're thinking, oh, this is just a found footage and it's it's okay. But, but once you get past that point and see where it's going, it is genius. I agree. It's a lot of fun. So I, I, I had to just you know, dig that caveat in there. Cause I knew, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was there. There's <laughs> always the exceptions that prove the rule. And that's one of them. Yes. All right. Jerks production asks, where would you say is the best place to start when you're ready to try to sell a script? Well, the best place to start is uh, trying to find an agent, you yep. know, uh, uh, people who, are connected to the studios, the producers, the buyers of material that you're creating. Um, they are the doorway into those buyers. Um, it's very difficult to knock on doors with a script and get anybody to pay any attention to it, to read it. Um, there are agencies who will look at unrepresented material. Um, they are usually the smaller agencies or young agents in big agencies who want to establish themselves, they might be assistants mm -hmm. and, you know, they read a script, they come across that, they go, boy, this is great. This could help me become an agent yeah. if I bring in material like this. It's a very difficult task to be able to get people to pay attention to your work because decades ago, um, when I first met Larry Cohen back in the late seventies, he said to me, every asshole has a script in his back pocket. <laughs> well, now every asshole has a script in his iPad, but, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but everybody, and you know, he obviously was making a joking point, sure. but it is so ubiquitous and so commonplace in this town in particular. And because everybody is interconnected electronically throughout the country, throughout the world, screenwriting has never been an easier task to achieve but that also makes it so that there are so many people writing screenplays, so many more people interested in making films and writing films than when I began, mm -hmm. that it makes it that much more competitive. And yep. if you have something that stands out from the crowd, yep. a good agent or a reader from an agency is going to recognize that and say, hey, I think you ought to take a look at this. Yeah. Getting it to them is the tough part. And, and, and that's by you know, looking up references that will tell you what agencies will accept unrepresented material. Yeah, I think also pay attention to 
contests and such. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, Festivals and contests. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and, and be very, very leery about them because there's a lot of fakes and phonies, but, but, you know, if you can find one that has uh, industry panels uh, who judge the finals, you know, for example, I just read a script from, uh, from a new client that my manager signed. He sent it to me to read uh, and it was very good. And it was a finalist in some competition that he was a judge on. And so, you know, I don't even think he won, but, you know, my manager liked the script so much, he reached out to him anyway, and now he has representation. Yeah, Uh, there are great uh, festivals here in L.A. Uh, Etheria is great if you're a female filmmaker uh, in the genre. Etheria is is a a great one. Scream Fest has a competition that's really good. And there are people who come out of those competitions with successful careers. Yeah. Austin Film Festival, the Nichols. Um, you know, yeah. Austin and Nichols are two of the biggest. Yeah. 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 Uh, but if you can get into the, even the quarterfinals in, in those competitions, people pay attention. So, you know, it's, it's, it's worth uh, investigating some of those in particular, uh, but just be leery about where and how you spend your money in that space. Yeah, people who charge you a lot of money to enter into a screenplay competition, look them up because most of them are bullshit. Yeah, no one's going to get excited if you were a finalist in the Rhode Island screenplay competition. <laughs> so, well, not to denigrate Rhode Island. No, but no, you know, just right. look it up first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, Jake asks, Mick and Joe, have you ever had an independent financier approach you about wanting to fund a movie or television pilot for yourselves to make? If not, how would you respond to someone offering to finance your next project independently? Uh, I've had many people come to me and say, I can bring 50% in. (laughs) And I don't know why these people never meet each other. (laughs) I just don't know. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've had that. I've never had somebody say, here, I've got the money to do this, except when we were pitching Masters of Horror and we went to Anchor Bay. Right. But that was a production company that, sure. that had their own funds to be right. able to finance the production themselves in-house. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you know, it's probably a little bit of a misnomer because I think independent film gets so, uh, you know, mis- misdiagnosed with uh, studio filmmaking. A lot of the companies that are independent financiers are very much in the Hollywood system. Right. Uh, so, so you, you end up taking and a mix taking dozens and dozens and as of I uh, meetings with independent financiers around town and they tell you what you're looking for. And maybe you can see if you can find something that matches up. Um, but a lot of the times there's sources far beyond, you know, they, you know, you might meet an exec who, who loves you and wants to work with you, uh, but they might not have the pull of the company they're at. The creative might not have the exact project they need to push through. There's a million reasons why uh, you can have a conversation with a, a financier and it would never work out. Yeah, um, well, I've had lots of experience meeting with independent financiers and I will tell you 100% that not one of them ever worked out. (laughs) People with independent money to make independent movies, I know it happens here and there, but I've never had that experience. And I've always asked them, because most of them do say that they can bring half the funding to the table. Sure. And I always say, 
where's your other half, you know, right. Uh, right. why so can't you guys find that Nick? Uh, <laughs> no, I know it's, it's, it's very odd. I've had a lot of conversations with people like that too. Um, I've, I've had conversations with people who can fully finance, but never seem to uh, figure, figure that out. I'll never forget though, when I was working as an executive for Christina Aguilera's company, we took a meeting at TriStar. I mean, I know there were a studio and such, but the executive there said, you know, we really want to do something with Christina. Think of us as the bank. <laughs> they were like, there you go. come to us when you have an idea and think of us as a bank. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty wild. But, you know, we never could find an idea that the bank was willing to uh, loan us money on. So, well, you know, some bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't yeah, well, very helpful. It's not, it sounds like it sounds like any old bank, actually. But, yep. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, I think it's 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 uh, it, you know, if someone really did come up with the money, I think both Mick and I would say thank you. Uh, yeah, we we would, but it it's never going to happen. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, if somebody did come to me that way, I would never trust it. <laughs> yeah, it's always a little too good to be true, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, all right. Uh, on that positive note, uh, our final question for today, uh, Chris wants to know, uh, what is your guess as to how many projects you worked on that never got made and what percentage of your income does those unproduced projects con- constitute? Back in my question. early, back in my early days, um, I was making a lot of money compared to what I was making working at Tower Records. Um, sure. Uh, writing screenplays that never got produced and probably 70% of yeah. what I was making came from writing unproduced uh, screenplays. Yeah. Uh, as time has gone on, I've done a lot of spec screenplays some get sold, some don't. Some get optioned, some don't. When they get optioned, often that's for no money at all. Right. Um, so it's hard to say. I mean, at, at this point, the state of the industry is so bizarre mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and I'm a little bit unusual in that I have no qualms about writing spec. You know, I don't want to go out and pitch a project before I write it necessarily. Um, and you know, some get sold, some get optioned, many of them, if not most of them don't, but I'm writing and I'm always improving my craft, uh, and having ideas and exercising my mind and, and, you know, keeping fresh and all of that. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't do many screenplays for hire, especially since becoming a director, I, I'm usually attached as a director if I'm doing some writing, but, but I uh, have no problems doing spec and not getting paid. So it's a, a smaller percentage of what I do that I do get paid for. Yeah. It's funny, actually. I think it, it, it harkens back to something we talked about in an earlier question as to why more mid-tier studios don't, don't make the splash that they used to. Uh, I think it, again, losing that physical media market really impacted the development market. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. You know, when you were coming up uh, in, in the eighties and nineties, much more money was getting spent on development than has been in the last, you know, 11 so years that I've been out here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
because I would say I'm the inverse. Most of my money has come from movies that have gotten made versus me doing development. Uh, So, so, you know, I think that it's, it's just, it's just, it's just a a title, a title way of change in, in the industry and how, you know, projects come together. Yeah. Yeah. It's been massive. And like I said, I would rather come up with an idea on my own, not have anybody else's input, sit yeah. down over the course of three or four or five or six weeks, write it my way, mm-hmm. and then see if I can sell it or get it yeah. optioned or whatever. And because I'm fine. I you know, love sitting in my office and writing. It is what I do both as a vocation and as an avocation. And, mm-hmm. and I, so it's something I would do whether I was making a living doing it or not. It's something I did for many years before I started making a living at it in the hopes of it. But I love writing and I love the process and I love storytelling and I would do it regardless. So, you know, I do it plenty of times where I'm not compensated for it. Yep. And that's part of uh that's part of being a writer. <laughs> yeah. Are you a writer or are you somebody who's looking to become rich and successful in Hollywood? Which uh, yeah. there is a lot better ways to make money. So <laughs> yeah. that being said, Mick, thank you uh, for answering all these questions. We've got many, many more to come in subsequent episodes, but uh, thanks everyone for sending them in. And keep sending them in because we like the fresh ones too. Uh, yep. so thank uh, you, Joe. And thank you to all the listeners for those great questions. Yep. And you can send them to uh, Mick at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets or Joe Russo Graham respectively. All right, Joe. Thanks. And I'll see you next time. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.